Good to be together again. We uh, began a couple weeks ago a series um, on the Holy Spirit. And uh, my encouragement uh, to then and it is today that you and I would learn together. That somehow, some way, if you could set aside all we think we know and kind of once again lay a foundation and learn together. I'm not just on Sunday morning, on Sunday nights. Uh, you're invited tonight as we continue the Foundations of Doctrine class. It's a stand, each one's a standalone topic, and so you're invited. Uh, that's been a great time to continue to learn together as a body, and so we hope that uh, you might at least come check it out. Try and see if that's something that uh, is a blessing to you. And so, But our, our goal, again, is to learn this morning together about this whole issue of being the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was asked many years ago by someone, and they said, Matt, have you received the baptism? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? That was the question. I'm not going to tell you what I said until later, okay? But it was a question. It was a legitimate question from the person. And, um, but it may, my mind went back to then as I studied uh, these last couple weeks on this especially. Um, but I think it's going to be incredibly helpful, not only on this topic, um, but as we evaluate in the future other experiences um, not just in our study, but in our life. There's two clarifying choices you and I have about authority. One is we can take experience we may have or had and evaluate it in light of the Bible and then determine whether it's good or bad. Or we can evaluate the Bible based on our experience. In other words, we can go to the Bible to somehow justify our experience problem there, obviously, is we play loosely with Scripture. And so the great question when it comes to any experience any of us may have is who's going to be the ultimate authority with it? Is it going to be the Bible or experience? We need to be honest. We're an experience-driven culture. Um, everyone likes to have experiences, and we like events, and we like those type of things, and, and, that, and that's okay. Um, but we need to make sure Scripture is our ultimate authority in which we interpret experience by and we give priority to Scripture. So whenever we talk about whether it be the baptism of the Spirit or any other experiences, we need to start with that issue of authority. And uh, we want to make sure that the Bible is our ultimate authority in that. But there's another clarifying thing we need, and this is going to be incredibly helpful, I think, is there's two approaches, two kinds of Scripture, descriptive and prescriptive, and they're different. Descriptive passages tell us what happened. And sometimes it's good, and sometimes maybe not, but they're describing something for us. In other words, we go back in the Gospels, and Jesus uh, confronted, came in, in contact with a blind man. If you remember, he spit and applied that spittle to the man's eye and healed him. I don't recommend you pray for people that way. Um, I'm not sure that would be received really well. But it's describing for us what happened. In the book of Acts, we see people come sell their property and give all that they, they made on it to the disciples. Now, maybe God would lead you to do that, but maybe not necessarily. It's just telling us what happened. It's describing it. It's descriptive. And as we study, we need to be aware of this. But there's not only descriptive passages, there's prescriptive, and prescriptive tells us what to do what to believe or what to act upon. 
Whereas descriptive tells us what happened, prescriptive tells us what to believe and what to act upon and what to do. You know, we're called to be generous. That's prescriptive, but that doesn't mean we sell all our property or sell our property and give all proceeds to it. Maybe, but not necessarily. Where prescriptive passages tell us if we need healing, we can call on the elders who will come pray for us. That's prescriptive. Not necessarily come and have them spit and apply it to wherever. That's descriptive passage, and you could see the problem if we start looking at descriptive passages wrongly. And so be very aware of that. And we're going to come across that in multiple weeks as we come across here. And when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's two different views. One is the baptism of the Spirit is concurrent with salvation. In other words, we're baptized in the Spirit the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's a second view that says the baptism with the Spirit is subsequent to conversion. In other words, it's a separate event. It's a separate experience. Some call it doctrine of subsequence. But this subsequent experience, this subsequent baptism of the Spirit, is believed to be so because some would say the disciples were saved before Pentecost. And when Pentecost came, which was when the Holy Spirit came, they had a separate experience in which they received the Spirit. Jesus, matter of fact, in Acts 1, told the disciples, wait now, wait. And then the Spirit will come upon you. And so it's thought that this is a, the normal way it's supposed to be. Matter of fact, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19 repeat this pattern. Let me give you an example in Acts 8. Verse 14 through 16 is an example. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And so the subsequent, uh, conver- this subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is separate from conversion, this belief, this view would say, it's thought that this pattern in Acts is repeated, and it's normative. That's the way it would happen, is that uh, all through history, for the, uh, the pattern would be true for you today, and for all those who came before us, that they'd come to faith in Jesus Christ and that later, subsequent, there would be a separate experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But let's look at the scriptures and see if subsequent view is what really is being taught or is it concurrent. Now, when we read baptized with, in, of the Spirit, it's the same thing because it's the same Greek language. Translators just use it because of grammatical flow or sentence flow. So when you read baptized with, baptized of the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, you're talking about the same thing. But be very clear, it is distinctly different from being filled with the Spirit. We'll look at that next week. And so there's a distinct difference there. There are seven different places in Scripture we find baptized with or in the Holy Spirit, seven. The first four are parallel passages in the gospel. I'll read Matthew 3.11. It's also in Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, John 1.30. Matthew 3.11 says this, John the Baptist speaking. He says, as for me, I baptize with water for repentance. 
But he who is coming after me, he is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now this is all we know. A promise has been made. A promise has just been described for us. As John points to Jesus, saying he, we know the Lamb of God, he points out in John. He's coming and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So four times, four of the seven, we have parallel passages in the gospel. The other two times, the next two times I should say, we find in Acts 1.5, Acts 11.16. Now in Acts 1.5, it's just before Pentecost, and I mentioned it already, the disciples were told to wait. Verse 4 of Acts 1, and gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave, just as Jesus, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so Jesus quotes already what has been quoted in the Gospels. John promised this in a couple days. This is what's going to happen, guys. And so we read that in Acts 1.5. Acts 2, we read the account when the Holy Spirit came. We read about tongues of fire and a rushing wind, and the Holy Spirit came. And all were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues. When we get to Acts 2.14-22, through 22, we see Peter. He's preaching, and he says this event, is what Joel had foretold back in Joel 2, 28 through 32. As Joel said, there's going to come a time when the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on all people. These are descriptive passages. They're, they're telling us what happened. And these early believers could not receive the Holy Spirit until Pentecost. Remember, up until Pentecost, they had an old covenant relationship with the Spirit. We talked about that a couple weeks ago where the Spirit would come on them for a divine appointment. But they weren't indwelt with the Spirit in this unique transition time. And when Pentecost came, the promised Holy Spirit indwells all those who come to faith. Now, Acts eleven sixteen, we come across another time. This is used in the context now. This gospel is expanding to Samaria, to the Gentiles. Peter goes to preach. And he quotes Jesus in this passage. Now, and at this time, many Jews had a unique question. The gospel spreading to all people. And a question came to the Jewish people. Do the Gentiles really belong in the kingdom of God? I mean, we're God's chosen people. So certainly, we're part of it. But Gentiles too? How would they know? Well, when the Jewish believers saw the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit given to the Gentiles... Acts 11.18 tells us their conclusion. Here is their conclusion about seeing the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentiles. Peter tells them that's what happened. And when they heard this, they quieted down, they glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And so they didn't say, okay, the second baptism has come to the Gentiles. No, their conclusion that receiving the Holy Spirit was that what? Repentance had come. That was their conclusion. And so we need to be aware of what's going on here. But again, in, we, in Acts, we have these descriptive passages. Now in Acts 8, 10, and 19, which I already referenced, where we see the Holy Spirit fall, the Holy Spirit come upon people, we really see God's plan unfolding. Acts 1, 8, Jesus tells us, his followers, he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we read in Acts 8, 10, and 19, that's exactly what we see. 
the Holy Spirit come upon the Samaritans, the Gentiles in chapter 10, and then these belated, belated believers who were followers of John the Baptist in Acts 19. And they not only receive the Holy Spirit, but they hear about Jesus for the first time. And so we have this, this dynamic where the gospel's going out, just like Jesus instructed his disciples to do. And as the gospel went out, we see people receiving the Holy Spirit. So, it, by the way, in each of those passages, we don't read, read anything about a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those aren't any references that refer to it. So we have four in the Gospels parallel passages where baptism of the Spirit is mentioned or baptized with the Spirit. We have in Acts 1, Acts 11, two other instances where baptism with the Spirit is mentioned. A question then would come, and it's a good one, is Acts normative? In other words, what we read in Acts, is that should that be a normal experience for every believer? Clearly, we would have to say no. That's not what Scripture is telling us. In Acts, we read of a unique shift in redemptive history. It's a time of transition. The disciples believed in the ascended Messiah, but up until Pentecost, again, remember, they're still living in this old covenant experience. The Holy Spirit comes now and indwells them. Their situation's not ours. We never lived in an Old Testament, Old Covenant experience with the Holy Spirit. We're in a different dynamic, a different time. That was a transitional time, and we, need to, we can't forget that. So these descriptive passages describe what that transitional time was like. These descriptive passages don't warrant the teaching that believers will have a second baptism of the Spirit. Now, 20th century Pentecostalism began to really kind of amp up this teaching that there would be a second baptism, a second act of grace, a second blessing, it was called, with evidence of speaking in tongues. This teaching was that every believer would have to have an experience later if they really wanted to be used of God. And there would be evidence of their receiving this baptism, and often some would really even go as far as to say you wouldn't be saved unless there was evidence of speaking in tongues. But that's nowhere found in the Scriptures. The charismatic movement came along and said, we're not going that far. Uh, there's no way that we would ever teach that you need to speak in tongues to be saved. And many would not even necessarily say that you need to speak in tongues to have a second baptism of the Spirit. So the charismatic movement is different from Pentecostalism. We, we'd be wise to know that, and we'll talk about that later. But understand that Pentecostalism came along and really introduced this idea of a second baptism. Well, let's look at the one prescriptive passage. Of these seven, we have six descriptive, but we have one prescriptive passage. Again, prescriptive passage tells us what to believe, what to act upon, and what to do. And we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is amazing, the context of this, of this verse, for one. Chapter 12, Paul's teaching to a messed up church, by the way. He says, listen, you're one body. You have one spirit. The eye can't say to another part of the body, I don't need you. He teaches this interdependency of one another, that they need each other, that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And although the body is one, yet it has many members. And by one spirit, he says, we're all baptized into one body, verse 13. But let's read verse 12 before it. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. 
so also is Christ. For by one spirit, here we are, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Prescriptive passage. Now Paul's concern here is not to delineate how an individual becomes a Christian, but to explain how the many of them, diverse as they are, that's the context, become one body. His conclusion, notice the word all. They were all baptized into one body. Not some, all. All the believers in Corinth, he's saying, you were all baptized into one body. This spirit whom all were baptized into made them one, one family. When one becomes a Christian, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion, and this purpose is to bring new Christians into the body of Christ. There's no interval or second experience mentioned here or anywhere else in the epistles. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, I believe also reemphasize this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. I don't know if it's in your outline. I cheated. In him, Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. It, Paul's not speaking of any interval here. He gives no allusion to it or even a hint of it. This regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and conversion is the same work that unites us to Christ. Act, according to Paul, is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Again, this can be controversial in many circles, but we at Elam affirm that the Spirit baptism refers to the work of God in conversion by which we are joined to Christ and partake of all his benefits. We believe this theological truth Union with Christ is central to the New Testament teaching and needs to be affirmed. And again, it's important because it does deny Apostolum teaching, which insists upon a post conversion baptism in the Spirit, which is accompanied and evidenced, is often taught by speaking in tongues. And we would affirm that would not be true. We would affirm again that at conversion, you and I are baptized by the Spirit into one body. Now, again, being filled is different. And we're going to talk about that. And I, at this point, want to talk about the fact that some, some of you here may have had very real experiences after conversion. Could have been months, years, yesterday. And it could have been multiple, two, three, four different experiences in the Holy Spirit. I don't want to negate that. Because I, that happens. And we'll evaluate them later. But I don't want to negate that. But it's not wise biblically to refer to it as a baptism of the Spirit. That only confuses things. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the fact that at conversion, you and I are baptized by the Holy Spirit into one body. One baptism, many fillings. That would be a good one to remember right now, that phrase. One baptism, many fillings. Again, might have a, you might have had ex significant experiences. Those probably are called fillings. Celebrate that. We want to celebrate the work of the Spirit in one another's lives. Celebrate that, but let's not confuse it. <laughs> that would not be wise for us to do that. God does not have a baptism halfway houses, Tony Evans says. Nor does he baptize on the installment plan. 
There's no such thing as a layaway baptism where you make a down payment up front, pay on it each month, and then after enough time as a Christian, you get to take your baptism off of layaway and enjoy the whole deal. No. All the Holy Spirit you were ever going to get as a believer, you received when Jesus baptized you by means of the Spirit into his body at your salvation. So the question in the Christian life is not how much of the Holy Spirit do you have, but how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? That's the operative question, and it's significant. That same Spirit that's at work in all of us, no one has more of the Spirit than anyone else in the body. And that's important. One of the things I find remarkable about Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, is the work of the Spirit is always a unifying work. When we read about being baptized into the Spirit, notice we're, we're brought into one family, one body. Isn't it amazing Satan has taken that, which is a unifying work of the Spirit, and divided the body over this issue of baptism in the Spirit? That was never God's intent. Where the Spirit of God is, there will be a unifying work. When the Spirit of God is quenched, or when the Holy Spirit is being ignored, that's when you begin to see disunity. The Holy Spirit brings us into one body, one family. Is the unifying work of the Spirit is what we read. So the question I was asked was, Matt, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Have you received the second baptism? My answer, yes. The moment I received Jesus, I received Jesus and the Holy Spirit, I got a two-for-one. And that was my experience. That's when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. So if you had a post-conversion experience, I want you to celebrate it. But don't call it a baptism in the Spirit. It's just confusing, and it communicates what can be a very dangerous dynamic. And that's what I want to talk about in these final exhortations. One thing I hope that you'll do this morning is be confident in your baptism. When you came to Christ, you received the Spirit of God, not part of him, not half of him, all of him. We were all baptized by the Spirit into one body. He indwells you. He calls you his child. He draws you close. He testifies that you are his. Be confident in that. Be confident he placed you into a body, a body of believers. You belong. Be confident in your baptism. Don't be confused. Be confident in it. Paul says, the moment of salvation, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit into one body. Secondly, I want you to beware. Beware of a two-tiered Christianity. Because teaching a second baptism, especially with tongues necessary, downplays doctrine and theology and elevates experience with a consequence of creating two groups, the haves and the have-nots. Those who were baptized with the Spirit, those who were not. And that's dangerous. It creates disunity. And it's not scriptural. So you and I would have to stand in opposition biblically to anyone who says that a necessary experience of being baptized in the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit, is necessary apart from salvation. It's not what Scripture teaches. Beware of those who teach you need a certain post-conversion experience of baptism of the Spirit. The Bible doesn't teach it. But again, I do want us to be cautious in our judgment. Some have had some type of experience with the Holy Spirit. We should celebrate it. We should. 
Negating it doesn't encourage each other. We need to listen. Celebrate what the Spirit of God is doing in their life. But beware of those who would teach this type of two-tiered Christianity. It's dangerous to us. And it creates disunity. Third, be active. Seek more of what the Spirit wants to do in and through you. Confess, repent where that's necessary. Trust, commit, and yield. Now that's not easy, is it? Commit and yield. Believe that he empowers you. And when we do these things on a regular basis, don't be surprised when the Spirit does mighty works in you and through you. But be active. And make sure you look to Scripture to define your experiences. All of us need to do that. But I want you to think about something. All of us here who trust Jesus want to regularly experience a spirit-filled life. I believe that. I believe that you and I want to walk in the spirit. I believe we want to depend on the spirit's power and our behavior and our witness. That we all want to cultivate a deeper daily dependence on God's spirit. And so let's walk in unity in that. For the baptism of the Spirit is a unifying work of God and the people of God, which opens the door for you and I and us to an amazing Spirit-filled journey. Let's pray. Lord, I am so, so grateful that you looked down and saw a wretch like me and saved me. And I know my brothers and sisters here share that deep gratitude. Grace is stamped across our lives. Amazing grace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that we belong to you. That we can cry, Abba, Father. Thank you that we've been baptized in your Holy Spirit. In which we now belong to you and to, and to a body precious body which you purchase with your own blood Lord help us to walk in that reality that we've been baptized into one body that we're one and you call us to live that way as one to walk together Lord to be confident in your work in our life not only at the moment of salvation but Lord throughout our life as this work of sanctification you continually work in us to become more like you. We celebrate that. We rejoice in that. We're very grateful for that. Help us as your people. Help us here at Elam. Rejoice in your work in making us one. Might you continue to do that. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters here, I can't help but think maybe some here are feeling incredibly discouraged in their Christian walk. Maybe feel even defeated. Maybe confused. God, encourage them this day that you know and that you care and that you're there and you're near. So draw them close, God. Bind up the brokenhearted. Comfort the afflicted. Assure the confused, God. And might there be a deep abiding assurance that your spirit gives each of us this day. And together we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.